Hello and welcome. You are listening to the Investor Lab. And today, well, today and every day, my name is Goose. Nice to meet you. Thanks for coming back. Welcome. Uh, in the meantime, though, what we're going to be talking about today is we're going to be talking about investing, but of a different kind. We're going to be talking about investing in businesses as an angel investor. So many people might not even know what an angel investor is or how you can get into it or kind of what the how it all works and all that kind of stuff. So I thought it used to be a really interesting conversation to have. A lot of people think about investing in shares and property and all of that kind of stuff, but there are so many different wealth vehicles out there, not least of which, imagine if you could get in on the ground floor with a company like Amazon. Imagine if you were one of the first people to invest in Amazon or one of the first people to invest in Google. Well, they all had angel investors when they started. Now, and this conversation goes in a lot of different directions. I pushed, pushed and pulled our guest around quite a lot, uh, probably a little bit more than he had in test, anticipated when we jumped in here, but we covered a lot of really great ground. We covered, you know, what is angel investing? Why would someone want to be an angel investor? What are the risks? What are the returns? All of this kind of stuff. You know, we we what types of businesses um, would an angel investor invest in? And if you've got a business, what types of businesses you know, how could you make your business suitable for this kind of investment if that's the kind of thing you wanted to do? So we, it's a fascinating conversation that we had and we, we talked about all kinds of stuff related to business and raising capital and heaps of really, really, really awesome stuff. So if you are an active investor and you've ever thought about what other ways can I invest my money and what kind of returns are available, then I'm certain you're going to find this conversation very, very interesting. Um, now, as ever, if you if you you know want you're going to dig into this, you're going to love it, and you know you can find out a little bit more about our guest and their company once you get to the end of the episode. But of course. If you want to invest in real estate, if you want to you know, get accelerated returns and outperform most of the average investor, if you want to achieve those kind of financial goals you know, 300 to 600% faster than the average investor, well, I encourage you to get in touch. And you can do that, in case you don't know, by heading to theinvestorlab.com.au. There's loads of free resources there that help you go and do it yourself. Awesome. And also, you can get in touch with us there if you want us to help you do it yourself, one-to-one. You work with us. You know, That's right. You get, to talk, you get to talk with me and the team and so good in here. Welcome. Come on. And if you want to uh, to get started, then all you need to do is hit the contact form and let us know and book in a call. Without any further ado, though, let us get stuck into it. And I'd love to get your feedback on this episode. And I'd love to find out how, if at all, you enjoyed it and what you found beneficial about it. And make sure you hit the subscribe button. It's really important to us to help grow the podcast. And if this has been beneficial to you or anybody else, then just share that with them. Without any further ado, let's get stuck into it. I look forward to seeing you on the inside. Hey guys, welcome back to the Investor Lab. I am joined today by a and actually a quite little famous face. And we're going to talk about that in a, in a moment as well. But his name is Brandon Burns. He is one of the founders of C2 Angels, he's an angel, which is an angel investing firm. And on today's episode, we're going to be digging into a little bit around what the hell that is, how you can do it, why it's viable, all of that kind of stuff. But first and foremost, Brandon, <laughs> welcome to the Investor Lab. How are you? I'm good, Goose. How are you? Mate, I'm very, very well. So I didn't know this, right? I didn't know this until you sent through a little bio before this. But you're actually in Round the Twist. Yeah, I, I, I throw that one in there because I don't think it's that much of a big deal, but I forget how much our generation would have watched that as kids. <laughs> so yeah. I, I saw this other stuff too. Yeah, you're on Australian Idol. Yeah, you did all this. Yeah, yeah, yeah. All of that kind of stuff. And on Neighbours. And I'm like, yeah, whatever. All good. You're on Round the Twist. I'm like... <laughs> 
Now you're famous to me. And I actually looked it up. I was like, Brandon Burns around the twist. I did a little bit of, uh, there's a whole like wiki fan page and all kinds of stuff. That <laughs> you know, I played a ghost um, in the lighthouse that, and we filmed down obviously, at, you know, in areas inlet where uh, the location is for around the twist. And, and then a couple of years ago, I, um, I do the voice of the kids cartoons and there's one show on ABC and BBC called The Flame and Thongs. And Mark Mitchell, who's probably most famously known as being Con the Fruiter and on Full Frontal, and, and he was Mr. Gribble on Round the Twist, um, we came full circle and he played my dad on that show a couple of years ago. So, yeah, small world. <laughs> nice. Do you still do voiceovers for cartoons? Yeah, yeah. So I'm, I'm a, in my part-time, I guess, I'm a professional voiceover artist for both um, radio and TVC, but more predominantly for children's animation. Man, that's fascinating. That's really interesting. Well, it's that- yeah, because my kids watch it and I go, and they don't even realise that it's me. Oh, really? <laughs> yeah. How old are your kids? I've got four um, under seven. So my, my son's seven and a half and I've got three girls at um, four, uh, five, three and a half and one and a half. Wow. Okay. That'll keep you busy. Okay. So... Let, let's let's get into it then. How did you go from being a ghost in Round the Twist? By the way, if you're listening to this and you don't know what Round the Twist is, firstly, you're culturally barren. And secondly, uh, I suggest you go check it out. It's the best um, best Australian TV series that I believe has ever been made. But how did you go from being a ghost in the lighthouse on Round the Twist to getting into angel investing? Let's talk yeah. to that. Yeah, totally. Well, personally, I think the um, synergies between being creative, you know, and, and in a performance mode and being an entrepreneur are really, um, really similar, you know. So I would say that you have to be um, creative as an individual um, to really want to get into angel investing. But the reason how and, and why I sort of traversed over from acting to, you know, more serious life, I guess, was I convinced myself I needed a full-time job. You know, I, I'd worked full-time as a performer from about the age of 12 through school. So I can remember we did a show on Channel 10 when I was 15 and we we had a tutor on set for six months and there was a classroom next to the, the set and everything and I'd done a lot of it, but I sort of um, convinced myself that, hey, I needed to get a full-time job and I can remember my wife and I, we, had, we got a, an investment property, you know, we convinced ourselves, right, this is what we need to do and, uh, and I, I started in corporate world, but I quickly realised that I love doing stuff on my own and um, so that just sort of led me to being so curious about being able to um, fund and, and get involved with people who who were similar to me who wanted to do their own thing, and it's 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 a way to remain creative, open to opportunity, and be able to experience excitement through someone else's journey as well as as well as your own. Mm. Um, so yeah, I guess I, I, that's how I came to to be in it. But I've spent time in an incubator as well, so I've worked with early pre-revenue startups, finding a mentor finding their advisor, finding the first. What was what was your involvement in those incubator stages? Did you have a project that was being incubated or how did that come Yeah, so, so there's a there's an incubator in Geelong and Ballarat called Runway. It's probably like a top 10 regional incubator in Australia and it focuses on pre-revenue startups who are looking to s- secure their first round of investment and validate their product. And I actually started off at one of the um, incubators as a tenant. So I had a, a digital agency which failed uh, dramatically then I had an app development company, which which scaled hugely and then had a little bump. What was the app? Uh, it wasn't an app. It was a company that built apps. So, ah. you know, you, you guys, your listeners can probably remember over the last probably two, three years, um, building an app and thinking that that's the solution to a startup was all the rage. But people quickly realized that, 
You don't need to spend you know, half a million bucks building an app, finding out if something's going to work. You can do it a lot leaner and a lot more effectively. So I had an app development agency and then I traversed over to the incubator itself and I headed up the entire community. So I worked with all the stakeholders. So my job was to bring together a startup with a mentor, with a customer, with an angel investor, with a strategic partner, with maybe a sponsor or a government body, and then try and help them get through that first six months of you know, the valley of death for a business mm. to come out the other side and, and, and have, a, have a fighting chance. So, yeah. Awesome. And how long have you been, how long have you been in the, that, this whole space, the angel investing? And- yeah. So I've been involved in angel investing for the last 12 months, and I've been heading up the business unit C2 Angels at C2 Capital for the yeah. last four months. So um, it's been an exciting experience because we've had to navigate, as you would know, pretty trying times. And, and as a business, we've only been able to control being able to double down on smashing it virtually. So we've really gone hard with our events and engagement from that manner. Um, yeah. yeah. And so but one thing I would add is because we, we talk about this to all of our customers, if you look back at all the major recessions, Disney, Microsoft, Facebook and Google – were actually all companies that were funded and born out of like a huge downturn and a huge. Oh, dude, the list is way bigger than that. There's like there's uh, there's it is it is like there's I can't remember how how many of the Fortune 500s were, were born in a recession, but it's like a it's a majority. Yeah. So we're is, like we're just we're just hanging here. We're just poised. We're thinking this this the opportunity coming out of this, and that traverses over to real estate too. I couldn't I couldn't agree more. Like the opportunity, if not already. Is going to be massive. Yeah, totally. So, all right. So, um, we'll talk to that. We'll talk more around that in a minute because I want to get your opinion on real estate and everything like that. As a business owner, as an entrepreneur, as as uh, as someone who's currently in North Geelong. Um, but what's the been the biggest bottleneck in this past twelve months? So, well, six months or whatever we want to say um, d- during this whole kind of global crisis period, all of that kind of stuff. What's actually been the biggest bottleneck? Has it been angel investors or has it been businesses to invest in? Uh, Definitely angel investors. So if you were to go to America, Europe, or even parts of Asia, angel investors are a a serious profession. It's a full-time gig and it's a respected and known gig. In Australia, it's a cottage industry. It's a hobby. It's something that people do uh, with everyone else as a small-time endeavour and they don't really take huge risk. The number one problem in Australia is mobilising capital. So I'll paint a picture for you, right? In America, per capita, there's about $12 spent USD per capita on early stage startups. In Australia, it's 68 cents. Wow. Wow. What? Is money, you know, and with that comes people aren't educated. You know, people in Australia watch Shark Tank. Yeah. Think, oh, wow, that looks really complex. It's a bit of a dark art. And it appears you have to spend hundreds of thousands of dollars to do it. People don't realize that if you want to be an angel investor, you can spend five, 10, 15 grand and you can seed a business, get equity in it and really make an impact for a founder. But people just don't realize that it's accessible and it's actually something you can do. And yeah, yeah, we're obviously trying to change the game there. So our, our big North Star metric and our big goal is we want to get, you know, 200 new angel investors, mums, dads, doctors, lawyers, whoever they may be, deploying 200K so we can raise 40 mil. Because in Melbourne alone every year, we reckon that's the gap 
of funding that doesn't exist for early stage ventures. So yep. that you have to educate people, as you would know. You know, people need to become more familiar and aware of the act of being an angel. Yep. Okay. Yep. So, so well, let's talk to that then. Like what actually is angel investing? Great point. So there's two types. You can be an active angel or an inactive angel. Both are just as effective depending on what the founder requires. And it's the person who puts in that initial amount of money for the founder to go and grow the business and find out if, hey, people actually want to pay me for this product or service. The best example for the listener and the viewer is Jeff Bezos from Amazon. So he raised his first $2 million from 20 investors two of which were his mum and dad who still have shares in the business to this day. So obviously um, there's huge opportunity, as you can see, with being that angel who gets in early. So it's the first investor, right? But often you're taking a punt. You're really taking a risk and you're probably doing it because you're passionate about the person rather than the idea. So, so so let's talk to that then. Like, what about the risk? Because a lot of businesses fail, right? So it's... Absolutely. Is there... I I mean, is this... like from a from an investment perspective, from the viewpoint of our listeners being investors, and they're probably thinking, yep. "Why the hell would I want to invest in a business? Why would I, why would I if I've got a hundred thousand dollars? Why would I want to invest in a business and not real estate? It seems very risky." Yeah, and, and in fairness, I would say compared to real estate investment, it's more risky. And we talk to our clients about angel investing has to be a portfolio view. So on average, one in eight, one to 10 angel investments that someone makes will become a success and will return. And so you'll be able to become liquid and get a return. The op- say that again, one in how many? One in, one in eight, one in 10. So it's- All right, so we'll say 10%. Correct, yeah. So you know, everyone who approaches this really should focus on having a portfolio view. Um, All right, so, so if I've got 100 grand, uh, I need to invest $10,000 in 10 companies- yeah, I, I'd be saying either investing 10 in 10 or I'd be investing maybe 20 to 25 in two to three. But the, the beauty of angel investing is, and we encourage it, you go in with others. So we syndicate, we have lead investors who've done it before. You can shadow, follow in their footsteps. There's a guy in America called Jason Kalkanis. He was investor number four into Uber. And he runs a business called Angel University out of the States. Mm. And what people do with him is they go in with him. And he talks about, and we agree, that you take baby steps first because it's a portfolio view and it's a, it's a risky game. I mean, the upside is you can get 20, 30, 40x return on your money over yeah. time. You have to- over what, over what period of time? Well, some startups, can, some startups can return quickly. So if you look at Afterpay, that's probably a bit of an anomaly, but that's a business that really has provided the ability to, to get a return quicker because it's grown, grown so quickly. But with an angel investment, you can expect that it's a long-term game, five to ten years, to be fair and realistic. Okay, so what you're saying, so so let's, I want to kind of give this some, I want to make this real, right? So let's say I've got a hundred thousand dollars, right, and I wanted to go and invest. I decided, all right, I'm going to try my hand at angel investing, yes. and I go and invest in five companies. Now you said it's like a one in eight, one in ten chance. So five, we're sort of playing against the odds there anyway, because maybe all five will bomb. Yes, right. But let's just say one of them takes off. I've invested, so I've invested twenty thousand dollars in five companies. So I've got twenty grand, and then I can get over, say, let's call it a five-year period. Yep. Get a forty x return. Absolutely, in- incredibly possible. I mean, the, the- what's po- that's? Hang on, sorry, that's possible. But what's realistic? 
realistic is I wouldn't be expecting, just to be fair to your listener and, and yeah. angel investing, to, to not get a return in a, in a short term. Really, when you write a check in angel investing, you're mm. obviously making a long-term uh, play and you're investing in a person. So really, um, if you were to become strategic about it, you'd be looking to invest in things where you know you can assist that founder on their journey beyond just money. So Mark Cuban on Shark Tank, as an example, Mm. He only invests in businesses where he can help them make the sale. So he's obviously got a lot of experience in um, SaaS and software businesses and he tends to invest in them as a result and founders in that space where he knows he can dial in a key strategic client or partner that can become a customer of that startup he invests in, raise their value and also turbocharge them. Um, But that doesn't really answer your question. So let me just clarify you shouldn't be expecting to get a return in a, in a short term, but it is one of the few um, investment options that still exist to get a huge, massive return. But it is something that should always be treated with a portfolio view. So, um, you know, if you were spending your 100 and maybe you wanted to uh, think about this logically, you probably, I reckon in my shoes, I might go 50 into an investment property as an example because I know that and yeah. I can work for me. And then the other yep. I would spread my risk and opportunity because if you invest in a founder in particular that's that's excellent and dynamic, you, you've really you've taken the opportunity to invest in someone that can take care of all the heavy lifting and the the growth for you. And often that's all people need. So like Nick Molnar from Afterpay, someone got in early. Now the two the two guys from Google got a hundred thousand dollar investment. First up, and that guy who invested the angels now worth seven point six billion. So that, that's obviously the most extreme example, but the key there is someone needed to get in early, and without them, the business wouldn't have got oxygen. It wouldn't have become what it is, and it probably would have failed, and they would have gone and done something else. So how much how much involvement does an angel investor have? Like, is it just yeah. cash, or is it or is it like are they? What is that typical relationship like? So for example. Right. Yeah, for example, like let's just say I've got 100 grand. Let's say I've got 200 grand and I decide to split that in half, 100 grand into property and 100 grand into angels, right? Yeah. I like I like that you said if I only had 100, I'd probably go half and half. So it's kind of what I was thinking of. I didn't, I didn't explain it. So if I had like 200 grand and I had 100 and I was like, okay, 100 into property, 100 into investing in businesses basically, is it just cash or do I like meet with the founders regularly? Am I like reviewing the books? Do I need to be a strategic partner? What if I'm a mum and dad and I don't know, like I'm not like I've never been in business. I'm a, I'm a mum and dad investor and I've, you know, I don't know anything about business or what, what kind of value could I be? Like, what is the typical yeah. relationship like? Yeah, totally. So an established and experienced angel investor, a career angel would want to be active. Obviously, they've got to spread their time effectively, but they want to sit on the board. They maybe want to be a strategic advisor. They may even want to have the role of CTO or CIO. On the flip side, for a mum and dad who's either unfamiliar or doesn't have the time, they can literally be inactive and just make the investment alone. They'd still want to see transparency on a monthly basis around reporting from the founder and see growth and see the trajectory of the business. Is it more risky though if you don't really understand? Sorry to cut you off there, but like if you're just – if you're – if you don't understand business, you could have the best optics in the world. Yep. Well, that's that's where C2 Angels comes in. Right. Okay, cool. So without saying, and, and this is the same for you, Goose, with you and your clients, someone to hold your hand, someone to help influence and be the authority. Yep. 
Um, so as an example, right, our offering does um, resonate with a mum or dad because they see the opportunity, but we do the due diligence. So every month we serve our clients, as an example, three to five founders and, and businesses to invest into that yep. we've done a month's worth of due diligence on. And it's something that we say to them, look, this is the opportunity. Let's say it's a fintech business. We think the opportunity exists here. We believe the valuation's right. This is the investment they're looking for. Here's their team. So you can see they've got a great spread of skills and experience. So they don't require you necessarily to be active. Rather, they just need the investment to get to this next stage. Okay. So if you're a business then, flip it around the other side, right, rather than from the actual angel side. But if you're a business how much work so let's say right let's just say let's just say that let's just say the dash dot we wanted to I'll just use us as an example just for the listener we're not seeking out any angel investment right now but if we were to be like hey hey brandon we want to get angel investment do we need to come to you with a like all of the answers or do you guys actually build out that kind of strategic due diligence and all of that kind of stuff and help build out the plan. Like as a business, for someone who's starting a company, maybe not Dashdot, right? But maybe somebody who's listening to this and they've started a business um, and they believe that they've got something that is innovative or scalable or brings a differentiation to the marketplace or some other way uh, going to be impactful. What? How do they need to prepare? Or is this something that you guys help with? Yeah, great question. So we have an investment ready program that we run and that's all about getting a business presentable to our network of investors. So mm-hmm. obviously, we only want to recommend things that we would go in on ourselves. Yeah. It is important that if someone was approaching us as an example, things we'd like to see from a business are, have you actually got paying customers? Mm-hmm. Have you proven that if you put more money into this, you could get yourself a second, third, fourth, fifth customer? So could we get you to a position where if we secure your investment to grow your client base, could you turn that tap on and could it work beautifully and could we maybe get you uh, three extra customers or 10 extra customers? So can this become a duplicate? Can we grow this? Can we scale this, right? And then the other element is what do you need money for? If someone comes to us and says we want money because we want to be able to pay ourselves and everyone on the team's salaries and nothing else, that's a little bit of a red flag. In some instances, it's important. But a much more attractive uh, scenario would be we've actually proven that we've got X amount of customers who want to buy our product. We've got Y amount actually paying us. And we just need to put the processes in place to be able to scale that and get us to 100 new customers or then to 1,000. That's a much more attractive proposition and it shows that the founders taken the responsibility to understand if this business can actually be scaled um, rather than just be a, a great small business. So th- th- there's, some, there's some key things that a founder would want to have and present. Um, mm. The other thing is, right, how big, ha- how big could this market be? So we don't ask the question around what's the worst that can happen. We ask the question, what's the best that can happen? So if what, we were to back this venture, can it actually become a $100 million to a billion-dollar business, go to North America and become an Afterpay or a Canva or an Atlassian? So what's the... What, is there a cap? Like, do you do you only invest in, or do you only recommend businesses that are like could have you know global afterpay status? Or is there is there a like if someone's got a really good idea for a milk bar, which <laughs> is that a, is that a, is that an investable product or not? Like, where is where is the line? No, we, the, the, this is a test to get the founder who comes to us to prove 
that they have considered a global strategy and that this can reach that level of valuation. It's not to dis dishearten people with a business like a milk bar as an example, but no, that would not be of interest because it would just be a waste of ours and our investors' time. And given we're based in Australia, which is so far away from the action and where a business needs to eventually end up, we have to put stringent, you know, we have to force ourselves to only entice stuff that can be of that nature. So hang on a second. So you're saying that if there was a completely Australian-centric business, that wouldn't ever be scalable enough? Is that what you're saying? I'm going to be, um, yeah, yeah, uh, yeah yes. Yeah. Really? Wow, that's... Yeah. yeah, there's no there's no wrong answers. I'm just yeah. you know the, the truth is what the truth is. So so for example, okay, so I, I'm I'm fascinated by this point, okay, because I think this is very interesting because I think if there's any anyone anyone who's interested in investing in real estate has probably thought about investing in other things, right? They've probably yeah. thought they've probably thought about investing in shares. They've probably thought about investing. They've probably heard about you know you know single share in, or single company investing, i.e. Amazon or whatever. And oh, imagine if I got into be a, one of the founding ones. And so this is potentially something that a lot of people have thought about. Well, I'm, and so understanding the, the business types and how that needs to be viewed, I think is very instructive to understand what to look for and how to approach it from both sides. Yep. But what I, I'm, I'm very fascinated by this point that if it, could only, if it could only exist in Australia, if it was a completely Australian-centric service or offering or product or whatever the case may be. Yep that that would never reach a market cap that would be viable for an angel investor? Well, we, ho we, we hope that one day that could potentially happen, but the reality is there's just not a big enough market here. What's the minimum market cap potential? So it has to be something that can reach a valuation of 100 mil to a billion dollars. Okay, but there's plenty of $100 million companies in Australia. Oh, okay. Well, then if, if we be honest, if we be fair about it, if the business can reach that valuation staying in Australia, yes. But the, re the reality is with most things, they need to get to an international market mm. and they need to have that view so that, you know, if we invest in it and we incubate it and help it, it has to, it has to grow quick enough to be able to get there so it's defendable, it can't be copied, it can get there quick enough to access that marketing and seize that momentum. Yeah, our goal here at Seed2 is we would love nothing more than for a business to complete as many rounds of fundraising as possible in Australia before it gets to the US or, or Europe. After okay. great example, because they've obviously listed on the ASX and it's a, it's a shining light. But for us, we just know that the amount of fundraising that needs to happen and funds that are available in Australia for a business if you're going to have to be forced to entice those funds from overseas to grow it as big as possible, that investor is going to want to see that business either in their market or with a strategy to be there quickly. So we really just use it as a way to force the founder to think globally. They can, they can still, um, you know, act as if, um, you know, they're at the stage they're at, which is validating their product and proving it working in Australia. But are they thinking long-term that this needs to be you know, a bigger play? Okay, a couple of points I want to touch on. You said 100, I'm using the lower end, right? Just for just for an example, but 100 million. 100 million valuation, what's the average multiple that you see in businesses? Three, five, seven? Because my point there is like, if it's, if it's, a, if it's a, a five times multiple, for example, that's a $20 million revenue company. There's plenty of companies out there that do $20 million in revenue. Yep. And that would, I think, be a viable kind of point. So I want to talk to that, but 
I'm also going to ask another question and we'll jump in. All right. So I want to, I want to talk to that. What's the kind of multiples? And uh, I'm, I'm, I'm fascinated by this, this idea that it needs to be global when it, I don't believe that it does, but yep. the other, um, the other thing that you mentioned there was like rounds of funding. So that kind of leads me to think that the whole concept around these businesses is that they're not actually commercially viable for a really long time. And you need to do, all right, more funding and more funding and more funding. Like why, why isn't there an emphasis on commercial viability early on? And would that, and would that overtake the need for funding? Oh, okay. Great question. So I, I never said that a business we fund wouldn't be commercially viable already. Rather, you need to raise consistently and at higher and higher levels to grow the business to a point where it can realise its, its value but also its ability to generate even more of a commercial outcome. Um, does that answer your question? I want to make sure that does. It, it's, it's just fascinating, right? So, for example, if, 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 I don't know, let's just say in the, let's just say you've got a business that's already making some money and you're like, man, if I just had, if I just had another $200,000, I would be able to, I don't know, hire a, hire a, a COO, uh, employ more staff and oh, we'd be off. Yep. And it's like, if you can build that momentum and then you've got commercial viability and you can market into the marketplace and you can, you know, build your client base and all of that kind of stuff. Why do you, would you, why would you need to continue to seek more funding? Why couldn't you just grow? Why can't you just be a fast growth business? There are examples of other businesses that have done that in different sectors. You know, there's like um, ClickFunnels, for example, software as a service that I think finally reached a billion dollar valuation and never had any, um, never raised any capital. You know, there's, uh, there's lots of companies that have done that. So where does the, where is the belief that, where does the belief come from that in order for a company to achieve that level of success, it must be funded and it must continuously seek to give away parts of the business to make that happen? Uh, okay. Well, if someone's, if someone's willing to make an angel investment with that degree of risk, um, at the early stage, it's only going to be worth their while if the business has the ability to deliver the 20, 30, 40x return. It's not, it's not going to happen with, with a business of that nature. It has to be a business that can scale as large as possible. You know, Canva is a great example. Canva um, you know, is worth over $6 billion now, and that business didn't necessarily need to scale to the size it has. But why it's doing it is because it's a competition for people's and attention it's a competition for users and with that comes the ability to grow further when they wish to add in further elements to their business it will generate revenue more and more facebook's Mm -hmm. of a similar nature it spent so much time growing because it knew once it had the share then it could introduce its paid element which obviously it has which has become enormous and businesses like click funnels just so you know um as i'm sure you do that is like an a plus example if a business can never have to raise and get to that level, that is just a holy grail nirvana example. But the reality is some businesses need to grow fast in order to be defendable, in order not to be copied and overtaken, and in order to get to a big enough status to be able to do things like Afterpay is done, which is acquire other businesses. So they'll raise, like Atlassian does this every day of the week. They've raised so much money and gotten to such a big point because they can go and acquire customers before they get to a point of risk or, you know, potentially being overtaken. 
Um, so, I, so just yeah. on that, so Atlassian, are they an example of a company? I, I don't know. So I'm, I'm yeah, curious because yeah. everyone knows Atlassian. Well, maybe not everyone, but for those who don't, uh, um, Atlassian are sort of like the darlings of the Australian entrepreneurship scene. Yeah. And they're, 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 I think they're the, the biggest success. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And they're the biggest, uh, I reckon, God, look, I continuously well, hear about how they're buying new $100 million houses pretty much every are week. You, it's, it's are insane. you familiar with Trello? Yeah. Okay, well, they bought Trello, right? So Trello is their product as an example. They bought Trello or they created it? I, I have a feeling they, they, they bought it. I don't think they created it from scratch. Interesting. But this is where the confusion comes in, but also in their eyes, it doesn't matter because now they've taken care of that threat. But they wouldn't have been able to do it if they weren't as big as they were and, and raised as a result. So it almost becomes a competition for having enough in the kitty to be able to keep competitors at bay to then grow your market share and hold on to it. Um, so it's a raising is a strategic thing. And a lot of founders like Russell from ClickFunnels is, the, is a great example because he hasn't had to. So he can really stick his fingers up there and give, give a big yeah. effort to venture capital and say, well, I didn't need you. But the reality is a lot of businesses need that funding to realise their growth potential. Mm. And, of course, with that comes an increased valuation. And then what do you know? That person who Angel invested at the very beginning when it was just an idea on a napkin and wasn't turning a dollar now realises a much higher return as a result of staying in it but watching it grow to, to the, um, the height that it did. What's the typical best use of the capital then? Is it is it doing like, and this is for your opinion, it doesn't need yeah. to be the company line. No, I can that. give you my example. So, so Yeah, I was going to like just, so an example like, uh, Atlassian, they they seem to have they they must have an M and A strategy where they're like, all right, we're just going to buy we're going to buy whole other companies and their customer base. Yep. Other people might have a pure like cold marketing strategy. Other people might look. Where do you see the best use of capital? I think they're a great example because um, they obviously have the customer already in a lot of ways. So people mm. use Confluence and um, Jira and they use their product right. But with that comes the opportunity to now serve that current client with a bunch of other options, which they ordinarily wouldn't be able to do unless they acquired other businesses that fix a problem and serve a need of their existing client. So for them, it's all about how do we continually make our offering more and more sticky? You know, the, the element of like Facebook having Instagram, it just creates another element of people not being able to leave their sphere. But the example of money best spent, like... With my first startup, we, there was five of us and we actually put together a hit list. So instead of just um, randomly approaching angel investors for money, we knew that we didn't just need money. We needed a strategic partner and someone who could mentor us but also help open doors with our product. So we literally put together a list and, and I'm based in Geelong in, in Victoria. So we wanted someone that we could touch and feel and catch up with. So number one on our list was um, Nigel Austin, who owns Cotton On. We couldn't get him. And then number two was an EdTech entrepreneur and investor in Geelong who'd recently exited a business. And we, we, we tailored our approach to him and we got him. So not only did we get him as an investor, but we got him as a mentor and a strategic advisor. And like you, you would have heard this saying before that if you ask for money, you get good advice. If you ask for advice, you get money. Um we really took the time to tailor our approach and court that investor and show them why we would be a great investment, not only from a financial perspective, but also as founders. Mm. Because what we notice more and more with angel investing is people want to invest in not just a great individual, but a team. Um, 
And if you can show someone that you've got a really dynamic team that's going to be able to be autonomous and drive this, open to feedback, but really be the driver, that's way more attractive for an angel who ordinarily, like you described, wants to be passive. They don't want to every five minutes be needing to, you know, the reason why they made the angel investment is because they can literally get on with what they're doing and have the diversification ticking away. Mm. But, but, mate, at the core of all this, it's actually exciting. Like my, my question I would pose is because I've seen this in the amazing marketing uh, that you do to me, right, I genuinely feel excited around building an investment portfolio with you because of how you, you've told me it can be. The same goes for angel investing. Like imagine if you got in early with Nick from Afterpay. Mm. So, yes, you'd have an amazing bank balance right now, but you also would have got, got to go along for the exciting ride. And a lot, a lot of people really pay attention and love this startup space where Elon Musk and Mark Zuckerberg and all these guys are playing, but a lot of people don't identify as, you know, having what it takes to be the founder. And that's okay because, right. is it, yeah, for every, is there t- yeah, for every founder, there's an angel and that's a role that's just as important for someone to play. Is there a particular type of business then that is more appropriate for this kind of funding strategy? Like we have identified not milk bars probably, (laughs) unless unless you've got some innovative milk bar uh, concept. That's a great question. Talking broadly, tech, Mm. anything with the word tech at the end, obviously that's very broad, but um, anything that can be not just a platform but like a meta body that, that top that can oversee. So Amazon's a great example, right? They own the space. They are the top. Everyone else operates under them, but they control mm. the whole thing, right? Um, fintech is a great uh, area for growth and scalability. So finance tech, right? So who's disrupting the banking model right now in Australia, which is just horrible? I don't know about you, but the last time I went and applied for finance and bought a house, it is so archaic. You know, the yeah. forms I had to sign and scan back. You know, who's disrupting that? Fintech's huge, right? Health tech goes without saying because coronavirus and the times are in. Agricultural tech. So Australia produces three times the amount of food it actually needs every year to feed its population. But there's parts of Asia goose which are uh, severely undersupplied when it comes to food. So why couldn't Australia be the food bowl for, for Asia? Why couldn't we be? You know, why isn't someone doing that? Smart cities. So obviously we've got a really safe economy and safe environment here. We, there's a lot of opportunity for people to innovate with regards to making cities smarter. And we're, we're, we're pretty uh, strong as a country with wanting to do the right thing by the environment, as mm. you know. Yep. Um, and then, I mean, in Australia, if we look back, it's pretty high. The amount of businesses that have been funded at a huge level have all been B2B SaaS companies. So, you know, that, that, that's just a pattern that we can't deny. Well, when I walk, but when I walk around the Sydney CBD and I look up at the big skyscrapers there, right, do you know who I see? Ernst & Young, Price Waterhouse Coopers, Four Seasons. I see yep. hotels and professional services. Yep. But why does that make you feel that they're necessarily the most successful financially? Well, uh, this is part of my question because, like, I see them on a skyscraper with their logo on the side of a frigging big building, a, bu- a building that's, like, infinitely large, not infinitely, but we'll say a thousand times bigger than I am. And I'm like, they've got these all over the place. Surely 
surely that means that they're financially successful and they're doing all this kind of stuff. Why wouldn't why wouldn't a let's let's call it like a Price Waterhouse Coopers type professional services type model? Why wouldn't that be, uh, or would it be appropriate, or why wouldn't it be? I'm curious. Um, well, they they have departments within their businesses worldwide that do due diligence M and A every day of the week, and they're looking for opportunities to fund. They'd probably operate at a level where they're more focused on scale ups, so businesses that are post revenue and are looking for that bridging round to really ramp up their team and get them into an overseas market. No, I mean, like, why wouldn't it, why would, let's say somebody else wanted to start a professional services company, right? Yeah. Why would that model be worth investing in? Because if, when you look at, when you look at just in the same way that you can look at an afterpay and be like, oh my God, there was like a, a FinTech and boom, they shot, right? And there, but then you look at like a PricewaterhouseCoopers and you're like, man, they're global. They're billions yeah. of dollars. Well, you, and- you and I couldn't start PricewaterhouseCoopers today and get to the size that they are in the foreseeable future. You mm. and I could start a professional services business and do our thing and plot along, but we'd likely be bought by them or we'd never get to that level of uh, size. But you could, do it, you could do it with a startup. If you actually, like, let's think about this, right? You're looking at Afterpay. What's, what really is incredibly innovative about that business? It's just glorified lay-by. Really? I mean... Mm. It's not necessarily encouraging great uh, wealth management or good spending habits or healthy finances, but it's solving a hair on fire problem, which is people want it now. They couldn't ordinarily get it or afford it, but now they can. And no one was no one was solving that problem. No one was meeting that need. The closest you got was you'd go into a, a TV store. And you'd buy something for 24 months interest free and you'd have to hang around for an hour or two while they did a manual application and only to find out that your credit approval didn't get, it, didn't get done and, and you couldn't get it anyway. So nothing's really innovative about that, but they just listened to the customer and they solved the problem. And it's, it started small, but it's now grown because obviously the, the opportunity to give that to everyone everywhere in the world is, is huge. How does that relate to the Price Waterhouse Coopers um, example? Um, what I, know we- I know I'm testing you. I'm testing you here. No, it's so- well, if you were to look internally into a business like that, they have departments that do exactly what we're discussing right now. Yeah. They're doing the same thing you and I are. They're looking for where is that next fucking 10, 20, 30x opportunity that could potentially validate here and get overseas quickly. And they'd use their networks to do that. So um, there's not, there's, they're not completely different, but those teams exist within businesses like that. And they provide services to startups, for example, around, you know, R&D tax incentives, how to understand raising. They probably help people raise as well. So it's an avenue. Yeah, so they're, they're big enough now that they've got the money and the departments to be able to go and then buy other companies. But let's just say you wanted to create, uh, let's just say you wanted to create, let's say you looked at an EY. Let's say you're an, let's say you're an accountant, right? And you're like, I can see Ernst & Young up there. I see the big E on the building. Now, Ernst & Young started as accountants, but they're not actually just an accounting firm. They're full and full suite professional services, okay. you know, consulting, auditing, blah, 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 you know, the whole, the whole shoot and match, right? So we'll just lump that in and say professional services. Why couldn't – now, you might say just because there's not enough market share, for example, but like why 
couldn't another company scale in that space? I mean, if they were innovative, if they provided a different angle, if they met a different market need, if they if they served a specific niche, if they, whatever, if there was market differentiation, if you said, I'm just going to be the next Ernst & Young, probably wouldn't work. But if you were a professional services company that had a uh, a, like a perspective that you wanted to grow to a $500 million a year company, bearing in mind EY, PwC, KPMG, Deloitte, these are all multiple tens of billions a year companies. So what if you said, right, I, I've got an idea and I believe that based on market size, based on uh, competition analysis and all of this other kind of stuff, I can grow this to a $500 million a year company and I could do that in the next 15 years. Mm-hmm. Why wouldn't that be uh, an investable model for an angel? Uh, so, so what I would say there is if I'm in the shoes of the accountant you just described, I, I would think, okay, if I start with the end in mind, I want to get a business sold for $500 million. It's likely going to be bought or facilitated as a, as a sale by Ernst & Young or PricewaterhouseCoopers. That's I'm a good exit. I know what other accountants are experiencing as pain. I would go and do right. Zero has been done. QuickBooks has been done. What problem can I solve for fellow accountants? And I'd go and pursue that as a business. And I'd use my clout and authority and authenticity as an actual accountant to say the reasons why I need backing and I need money to go and pursue my innovation in the accounting space. Mm. And I'd actually stick to my vertical and I'd use that pathway to eventually realize my sale, trade sale or IPO, back to a, a price waterhouse or EY with my innovation. I mean, Zero and QuickBooks are the best example. Yeah, but they're tech, right? They're tech. You're basically saying, oh, if I was an accountant, I'm trying to think of a tech solution. But I'm trying to, what, I, what I'm trying to say is like, people need accountants. People, people need human accountants. Yep. You know, uh, you know, there are 20 odd million Australians, we'll call say 15 million of them are taxable, right? So there's 15 million people in Australia that need uh, an accounting service. Uh, to some degree. Now, some people already have like a lot of a lot of people aren't happy with their accountants. For example, you know they don't. They're like, I don't know. They're just some guy who sits in a dusty office and he does a tax return once a year. But if you could innovate the service, right? And if you could say, look, we're going to provide a better quality of service. We're going to meet more of the market need. We're going to we're going to have a franchise model. So we're going to we're going to be the next H and R Block. But but. H&R Block, their stuffy and old and they're not cool and new and they don't do anything interesting and fun and we're going to change that game. We're going to shop in the market differently. We're going to re-engage people to understand the benefit of accounting and taxation and how we can help people and we can achieve greater levels of wealth and satisfaction. And oh my God, it's going to be a revolution in accounting. Yep. Right? Without any tech, right? Just like we're just going to be the next H&R Block, but cool. Yep. So there's a great example we just uh, interviewed on our show and we've been working with a company called TOA Global, and mm. they are called the Outsourced Accountant. So they're literally a business that's attempting to scale and solve this problem by bringing together outsourced work and resources but still delivering the same level of service as your traditional accountant here in Australia, as an example. But mm. it doesn't exist without tech. It's not tech alone, but it allows it to scale. Um, Tech's the globe. Well, yeah, I wouldn't be interested, just to be honest, I wouldn't be interested in um, coming up with a, a better practice um, as an accountant where I'm just a commodity amongst all the others. You'd have, to mm. solve, you'd have to solve a problem that they all face, but just do it better than everyone else, and that's the pivot I'd make. I mean, we're all, you're a parent, I'm a parent. Like we're in such a unique position. We can experience 
and witness firsthand every single day probably five to ten things that could improve and alleviate a really bad problem or pain right now with the way we go about doing stuff for our kids or things that could be better to make our life easier. It's the same for an accountant. And that's uh, to an old stuffy accountant who really wants to do something, that's the challenge I'd make. Well, look at yourself and your day and what you do as a service and what's, what's the key problem that you're facing that if you could fix right now, you know that would be a game changer for you, but you could also quickly find out and, and validate, you're assuming, but validate with your yeah. fellow accountants that they've got the same problem and then I'd go and build that. Can you can you scale in your opinion? Because what you've then is said you've like let's be an accountant that solves a problem for other accountants. But what if it was B two C, like H and R blocks B two C, for example, yep. rather than B two B? Yeah, you so, franchising, which which is one way to do it. Yeah. Do you think you can scale? Like, can you create a, an investable startup? A, you know, a J curve model. Can you do any of this kind of cool stuff? B two C. Absolutely, but that's an example of a business that would, would require, like a Facebook as an example, the user growth had to happen first. Before revenue kicked in and that model was sorted and it could operate, there had to be enough of a market share and a growth curve realised mm. for it to be possible. That's just the reality. It's so much harder B2C than it is B2B. Mm. And for anyone out there thinking of creating an app, trying to solve a problem for a consumer, you want to have a strategy in place where you can get a truckload of users and engagement if, if you really want to make that work. That's just the reality of it. I mean, it's easy to, it's easy to do and create something like that, B2C, but it's harder to get people to pay for it in a manner which is like it's, it's good enough from a revenue perspective. That has to be more about growth. You have to have extreme user growth and Volume. participation. You, you would know that. Yeah. B2C is too hard. Yeah, got it. Okay, cool. Sweet. <laughs> it's, been, it's very, very, very interesting conversation. I want to shift gears a little bit, right? So you've had some um you've had some successes, you've had some failures, you've yeah. been in different uh different industries, you know, you you had the app the app building company that scaled and broke and the uh, digital agency and all of that kind of stuff. What's been the best failure you've made so far? Well, number one was convincing myself I needed a full-time job. Like, you know, if I had my time again when I was 22, 23, I would have treated my, um, my singing and acting ability more seriously and I actually would have spent time um, learning the craft and respecting the craft. So I had a lot of success early as a child and with that comes the, the, the thought that, well, you're going to get every job at every casting. Um, and last year I actually went, went to method acting classes and it blew my mind just seeing uh, what's required. It's that they were run by a guy in Melbourne who spent 20 years in Hollywood working at Paramount as a script doctor, but he was also the acting um, partner for Robert De Niro and Raging Bull. And he's, uh, he just opened my eyes. It really uh, humbled me just seeing the amount of work that goes into that endeavour. So for me, my biggest mistake was it didn't drop quickly enough that irrespective of the amount of talent, the application of the craft had to go in, mm. and um, and it, it's so it's so true of of business and being an entrepreneur as well. You know, it's like Atlassian. We talked about being a twenty night overnight success, and they started off goose as a business that wouldn't have been doing huge numbers as well, right? But mm. 
they, they applied themselves. And um, I just I just want to share with you, I think the best example actually is uh, Bradley Cooper. So everyone listening and watching be familiar with The Star is Born, you know, with Lady Gaga. Yeah. And I wasn't really familiar with Bradley Cooper before that movie, really. And I thought he was just a guy who'd come on the scene. But the acting teacher I went to talked about how there's, there's a clip of him on YouTube where he's in the audience as a student at the New York um, Academy of Fine Arts when he was studying drama. And he asked a question of Sean Penn, who's the big celebrity actor, just about his career and some tips. And this is like 20, 25 years ago. And then here we are now and he's like the biggest star in Hollywood and he's acting and directing in a movie and he's getting someone like Lady Gaga, who's never acted before, to basically fall in love with him on screen and she wins an Oscar as a result. And when he broke down for us in our class, the work that he has put into developing his craft, um, Bradley Cooper brought to life a character called Elephant Man on Broadway about 15 mm-hmm. years ago. And he literally plays this guy who was a, a disfigured and deformed person in the, in the 30s. Yep. And he comes to life as him on stage. And I remember the acting teacher talking to us about how it would be nothing for Bradley Cooper when he was younger to have probably spent four to six hours every single day being in that character and doing mundane tasks that that character would do in their day and just practicing it and embodying it. And then, you know, when, when I saw just the sheer amount of hours that would have to go into developing that ability as an actor, I just, I was really humbled. And I mean, everyone talks about 10,000 hours of mastery for anything. Yeah. But that just really, it sunk in for me across all different verticals, anything we do. Yeah, so do you wish you'd pursued that more or do you now look at it and go, man, that would have been like, that would have been hectic and I'm happy, I'm glad I made this shift? No, I I wish I could have explored it more, but what I've done is I've thought, well, you know what, with what I've got and what I've done, I'm going to refine it a bit. And my my 10-year goal, mate, is I'd love to have my own late-night talk show in America, right? So I'd like more so to be someone that, that hosts and is has fun with guests similar to like a, a Rove or a, you know, a Jimmy Fallon and you can sort of facilitate um, energy with talented people like that. Awesome. Um, yeah, anyway. <laughs> awesome, awesome. Okay, cool. Well, in the, in the last five years, what, what belief, habit or, uh, you know, or behavior – Yep. Has, been, has most improved your life? Um, well, routine is a big one for me, but I would honestly say, mate, this is really like basic, but I find if the, the moment I don't consume a decent amount of water in a day, I just, for some reason, I cannot think clearly enough. <laughs> I cannot think as positively and as creatively, and, and I just feel it physically and mentally. And it's, mm. it's almost like a, a habit I've got myself into, as basic as it sounds, but I feel like when I drink, I keep hydrated during the day, it actually does something to my brain. I just feel like it, it opens it more. And, um, yeah, so that's one, that's one key thing. And then the, the other would be basics that everyone knows, like routine exercise. Um, Look, over last Christmas, I read Think and Grow Rich and that blew my mind and I, and I regretted not doing it way sooner. I can't mm. believe I hadn't read that book sooner. Um, so now I'm just trying to get myself into the habit of rereading um, the same chapter every night. <laughs> nice. But, yeah, you know, you know, people talk about getting the, the subconscious into the conscious and so yep. that's something I'm still a novice at but really trying to work on. 
Awesome. No, I appreciate that. That's great. That's good. No, it's good. I always like to just find out a little bit about how, what what other people are dialing in and how they're thinking about it. So that's all good. And you, you just so you know, uh, people listening, I had you on my show and you're a champion, mate. Like <sighs> I, I must say just personally, the marketing, the direct copy, the communication, like the way you have immersed me in what you do, like property guru aside, your marketing ability is like second to none. <laughs> I have been blown away. Like you're, I mean, you're obviously applying best practices from around the world, but mate, your ability um, of how you've engaged me as a prospect in your marketing is just excellent. Well, someone once said to me, or I, or I read it somewhere or whatever, that um, that you'll change more lives through your marketing than through people who directly do business with you um, by sheer volume and reach. Yeah. And that really, that really allowed me to think, you know, you know, a lot of people think marketing and they think sales and they think, oh my God, they're kind of like in some way sort of, do, oh, yeah, I'm getting marketed to it. So, well, the way that I see marketing is, is, is having an opportunity to impact someone's life in some meaningful way. And yep. so I recognize that of the millions of people who digest or interact with our different pieces of content and ideas and whether it be podcasts or emails or YouTube channel or any of that kind of stuff, it's literally millions of people. Not, they're not all going to end up working with us, but if I can impact them and share something meaningful, then that's kind of the goal, right? If I actually want to have an impact in the world. So yeah, we, 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 we love it basically. It's great. So oh, thanks. A lot. I've learned a lot from witnessing your um, automation as well. <laughs> yeah, it's fun. It's fun. It's a good. It's a good. Uh, it's a good system because I think the more that we can engage people, the better. The better. So totally. But but mate, um, if somebody does, if somebody's listening to this and they wanted to be and uh, wanted to, and they were like, all right, I'm thinking about becoming an angel, right? I'm, I mean, right, I've already I've got a couple of properties and yep. I want to diversify. Uh, I want to invest in the next afterpay. What should they do? Where should they go? Yeah, cool. So c2angels.com is the website and what we do is we actually flip it and we say to people, before you even think about writing your first check, hitting and hoping and, and fingers crossed, invest in yourself. So we actually have a program where people spend around three to five grand on themselves. They actually get education. They get access to mentoring. They get access to deal flow and they get the ability to attend our events and network. And we have a community of angel investors so we socialize it. We get people meeting each other. We find out where they actually want to impact. Some people won't want to invest in finance, but they want to invest in health. Mm -hmm. um, so we get people to spend time on themselves first and we help them understand what impact they want to make, where they want to invest. Yep. Then and only then when they're ready, we say, hey, you ready to write your first check? Let's go for it. We'll find you a startup and away we go. So yeah. Awesome. Sweet, man. Well, look, you guys heard it here. So if you are interested in doing that, check it out. Go to c2angels.com. Yep, not.au, just.com, c2angels.com. Awesome. I'll put a link in the show notes so people can check that out and head there as well and they can find out more about it. So, Brandon, thanks so much. It's been uh, it's been an interesting discussion and we pushed and pulled that around, I think, in a few different ways you probably weren't expecting, but I think it's been good. Now, you're a great goose and thanks for all the hard work you do and, and awesome work in the property space as well. Love it. Awesome. Thanks, man. Much appreciated. Speak soon.